Good morning. It's good to be with you and to be able to share with you together this morning. Now, I'm not used to the uh, microphone thing. We had crackles last time, so I was told that if in the middle of the sermon it starts crackling, if I just stand like this, <laughs> it'll be okay. So we take a vote. Which would you rather have, a scarecrow or crackles? <laughs> I don't know. Well, this is a time of both joy and sorrow to be back time of joy to be able to see you all once again and to be with you, but a time of sorrow is our, the nature of our relationship will change, and I won't be, we've only been coming here every two years, the last six, but uh, it'll, it'll probably not be so frequent in the future. Uh, I'd like to express my appreciation for you as a church and for the elders in particular, for the support and encouragement that I've had, my family's had over the last six years. Uh, missionary work is difficult, and it's been very good to have a church that's been so supportive to uh, free us to do the ministry and not worry about financial and administrative details and have uh, helped cover those bases behind us that we could do our work. And I want to say thank you to everybody for that. The Lord has now called us to a different ministry, and so we're heading to a, a new ministry field in Southern California I pray that the missionary work of Cole Community Church, though, will continue to grow and increase in the years ahead. There's a big world out there, a world of need, people who are desperate for the truth of the gospel that we can bring to them. From our little country in Singapore, Singapore is about uh, half or third the size of Ada County and has a population about equal to all of Idaho and uh, Nevada and Montana put together. But from there, we could see things. Uh, India was not too far. India has a population equal to all of Europe and Africa put together. And only about 3% are Christian. Not far from us, Thailand uh, is a country about the size of Singapore and has a population, excuse me, about the size of Idaho, has a population about equal to all of the states west of the Mississippi. And 99.5% are non-Christian and need to hear the gospel. Uh, there's one Christian we met there. Holly and I were in Bangkok uh, last spring, and we met one of the students, Damram, who became a Christian through the international student outreach from this church at BSU. And he and his wife are still continuing on doing well in their faith. Let's pray as we turn to the Lord and to his word, shall we? Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, open your word to us. May your word be our guide and your spirit our teacher, and your glory be our concern. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Prayer is the lifeblood of Christian living. In prayer, we come into contact with a living God and commune with Him. When our prayer life is stale, then our spiritual life dries up and withers. But prayer is not easy. It's hard to understand prayer and how it works. It's difficult often to persevere in praying when you don't see things happening immediately. And it's easy for prayer sometimes just to degenerate into a perfunctory routine. So I'd like for us this morning to look at a very well-known prayer and find some fresh insight as we look at that. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we will look together at the Lord's Prayer. This is undoubtedly the best known prayer among Christians, but one is not always understood. I heard a story one time of a young boy who was praying his nightly prayers, and his parents stood outside his door to listen and find out how their boy was doing spiritually and developing. And they heard him pray something like this, Dear Howard, thank you for mommy and daddy in the home and bless grandma and grandpa, etc. And afterwards they came to the boy and they say, Now who were you talking to? He said, Well, I was talking to God. They said, But you said, Dear Howard. Uh, and they said, Well, that's God's name. Well, how did you come to think that that's God's name? We said, In church. That's what we say. We, we say, Our Father which art in heaven, Howard be thy name. <laughs> well, many of us understand the prayer no better than this young boy, so we'd like to look at this in a fresh way together this morning. This prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer is said in the context of a section in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, in which Jesus warns his followers against practicing piety for the sake of impressing other people. He warns against giving money in verses 2 to 4 just to look good and look benevolent to others. Verses 16 to 18, he warns against fasting with a screwed up expression on your face just so that you can impress people with how dedicated and deep you are. And in verses 5 to 15... He warns us against the dangers of perverting prayer into hypocrisy. In verses 5 and 6, he says, Prayer can be perverted by diverting it from a concern for God's glory to a concern for our own glory. He says, And when you pray, do not be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Sometimes we're tempted. We attend a prayer meeting. We want to look good and spiritual and profound. And so we carefully construct a profound, pious-sounding prayer. And then when it's our turn, we recite this thing that leaves everybody saying, Oh! around us and we sit down with a smile on our face thinking we've accomplished much. Jesus says, beware. Those who who pray to impress men have a reward, but their reward is limited to the praise of men. The prayer never ascends heavenward. It never does any spiritual good. Well, some of us are never eloquent and we can't do that. But you know, We may do something else. It may be you fumble for words, but as you sit there in the prayer meeting, maybe in your home Bible study, as people are going around praying, you don't pay any attention to their prayer. You don't join with them in bringing their request before God's throne. But the whole time you're sitting there trying to think of something to say that doesn't sound dumb. You don't want to stick your foot in your mouth. And it may not be... a flowery eloquence, but it may also be just a concern on your part to impress those that are around you. Now, I know all about this because I've done both. 
Jesus says that if we pray, perverting prayer in such a way that we are out to impress people rather than seeking God's glory, then we have perverted the prayer and the prayer is useless. He says there's an antidote to this in verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. It's not wrong for us to pray publicly in church or in your Sunday school class or Bible study group. But Jesus is saying that we need to emphasize the personal, private prayer. We need to have those times alone in your bedroom or when you're driving in the car or when you're standing in line at the grocery store, when you're doing your housework. Those times when we're alone as we turn that time into a time of prayer and communication with God, then it protects and gives reality to our prayer life and helps prevent it from degenerating into a mere show to impress other people. Jesus says, beware of perverting prayer by degenerating, by by, uh, letting it degenerate into a Opportunity for self-show. In verse 7, he warns us against another perversion of prayer. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. He says, beware of paganizing prayer. The Gentiles or the pagans think that prayer is a, a, a way to find laws or rules by which you can manipulate the spiritual powers. We've seen this many times in Singapore. We observe people going into temples and we see them praying. What is important is not talking to the God. What is important is learning the right words to say, the right posture, the right offering, doing the, the, uh, the right gestures so that your prayers will be answered. The pagan idea is that prayer is like magic. Just like Alibaba standing before his cave and saying, open sesame and it would open. So if we can learn the right magic words, the right technique, then we can guarantee results. Now this paganizing of prayer has plagued the church throughout its history. Martin Luther, a young Roman Catholic monk, in the year 1510, visited the holy city of Rome in an attempt to find a true peace with God. And he was horrified, though, as he went there because as Luther was trying to reverently say the prayers of the Mass, he saw other priests who would hurry through and say three or four or five Masses while he was saying one. And he saw some who had come drunk to the service. Others who come straight from a brothel to perform their religious duties. The problem was a paganized approach, and they felt that the mere ritual was effective. If you did the ritual in the right way, it would guarantee a result. So it didn't make any difference if you're drunk or immoral, or whether you paid much attention to what you were doing. In the Protestant church today, we face a different kind of paganizing, but one that we need to be careful of. There are some today who are saying to us, if you learn the right technique and say it the right way, you can control your destiny. 
Some use the word the positive confession. Say, if you can learn to confess positively, you can be like God and speak the word and your words will come into being and you will control the outcome. One author, Frank Gaines, a publisher of Prophecy and Economics Newsletter, puts it this way. He says, anyone, Christian or not, can totally control his own flow of God's riches because there is a law of prosperity that can be used by anyone. Prayer is a scientific application following an exact law. That's the paganized approach to prayer that Jesus warns against. It's by the pagan, uh, by the mere repetition of the words, by your controlling, you have the power and you create. See, prayer is not learning certain scientific laws of the spiritual world and applying them in such a way that you're in control. We don't manipulate God through prayer. Jesus says there's an antidote to this. He says, when you pray, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. See, as we pray, we, we bring a petition before Almighty God, who is our Father. He's not just a spiritual force that we plug into, but He's our Father whom we call upon. We had a friend in Singapore whose two-year-old son ran out in the street and was hit by a car seriously injured and was in intensive care. The, a, a well-meaning friend came to Joyce and said, you need to pray over Luke in a certain way. He said, you can't get in there, but put your, if you put your hands on the glass and you just say, Jesus, 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 then he'll be healed. God will honor the name of Jesus and he'll be healed. See, it was for her, it was, it was well-meaning, but it was just a paganistic approach. If you get the right technique, of, you have to lay on hands, and that has magical power. If you use the name of Jesus, it's kind of like saying abracadabra, abracadabra, and it will guarantee a certain result. See, as, when we pray, say, I pray in the name of Jesus, it's not saying abracadabra or open sesame. It's not a magical formula. When I close a prayer in the name of Jesus, that simply means, God, I recognize that I come to you not as one who's worthy in himself, but I come who's, who can only approach you because of the merit of Jesus Christ. I come in his name, not my name. So it's not a magical formula. It's just a recognition of what gives us the right to approach God and request in prayer. Jesus says we need to guard against a paganized approach to prayer by remembering that we come before God, who is our Father, to make our requests. And in the prayer that follows, he gives us instruction on how to pray. Pray then in this way. If you look at the prayer, there are six petitions. The first three petitions concern God. The next three concern ourselves. The first one, our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Now this is often thought to open with praise, but praise would be, hallowed is your name. It's, it's good to praise God. I'm not saying it's not, but, but the meaning here is, may your name be hallowed. In other words, we begin with a recognition 
that God's name is not hallowed. We say, God, I want your name to be hallowed. I want it to be sanctified. You might understand better if I read to you a couple of verses from Ezekiel chapter 36, in which God prophesies his coming into history at the end of times. And he says to Ezekiel, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. We begin prayer with a recognition that God is not recognized for who he is. For many in our country, God and Jesus and Christ are just curse words, mere expletives to be uttered without thought. For many, God is no more potent a being, no more worthy of honor than the God figure that George Burns played in the movie, Oh God. And we pray, God, I want people to recognize you for who you are. As we lift our eyes around the world, we see millions of people who worship idols rather than the true and the living God. And we pray, God, I'm bothered as people are worshiping these things made by hand, this plastic deity with painted in bright colors, and they say, this is God. Or we see more often here, philosophical abstractions. If God is merely the ground of all being or the eternal force, it doesn't really have much effect upon your life. And so you can evade the demands of the true God through these abstractions. And we pray, God, I want people to recognize you, to see who you are and to bow down before you. And you know, as we pray this, it has an effect upon ourselves. Because I can't pray, God, may your name be hallowed out there in the world, without also saying, God, may your name be hallowed in my own life. May I recognize you for all that you are. That will mean that maybe I stop indulging in some secret sin, treating God as if he's not omniscient. He doesn't really know. Or treating him as if he's not holy. He doesn't really care. Or it may mean that I stop griping and complaining about my lot in life, acting as if God is not good. Or maybe he is not sovereign. He hasn't given me a good blessing in this life, and therefore I may complain and be filled with bitterness over my situation in life. So as I pray, may your name be hallowed. I myself am affected by this very prayer. The second petition concerning God is, Thy kingdom come. We are praying, may your kingdom come to this earth. Or more fully understood, we're praying, may Jesus Christ come again. Because it's that time when God will vindicate his holy name. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because when he comes again, 
all rebellion of man, which is tolerated now by God who is patiently giving man a chance to repent, will come to an end. And God's will will be done on earth as Jesus reigns. And so we pray, may it happen. But as we pray, may that happen in the future, we are also caught up in the concern for God's kingdom and its manifestation spiritually in the hearts of men now. And we are then caught up in prayer and led to pray, may your kingdom come as we learn to be your obedient children and your kingdom be more fully manifested in our hearts. And may it spread as others who are outside the church, who do not understand or know the gospel, come to understand it. May your kingdom come. When I go to work tomorrow, may I be a living witness. And in my neighborhood, may you open some way to make contact with those neighbors that I might reach them and show them your love and help them to understand the light of your truth. May your kingdom come in the future. May it be spread now. And again, as I pray, beginning with concerns for God. It again has a touch upon my life and my priorities and concerns right now. You know, it's hard to keep praying, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, and be totally caught up with selfishness. Our tendency, mine as well as yours, when we come to prayer, is to start with me. Me, me, me. And we pray, Hallowed be my name. May my kingdom come. May my will be done. It may not take those words, but we first begin our prayer. God, why doesn't my boss recognize my superior abilities? I should get that promotion, not that other guy. May my name be hallowed. And I'm so bothered by the gossip of this person, their criticism. Don't they see that I just couldn't help it? Please clear my name of all tarnish. And this wife of mine or this child or this parent or this neighbor just won't let me have my way. May my will be done. And our tendency is to pray in this self-centered way. But as we learn the lesson that Jesus teaches, we begin our prayer with God petitions. And then all those concerns of ours that seem so important melt in insignificance before the greater concerns of the glory of God. John Stott, in his book, Christian Counterculture, states it this way, We are constantly under pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of secular culture. When that happens, we become concerned about our own little name, liking to see it embossed on our notepaper or hitting the headlines in the press and defending it when it is attacked, about our own little empire, bossing, influencing, and manipulating people to boost our ego, and about our own silly little will, always wanting our own way and getting upset when it is frustrated. But in the Christian counterculture, Our top priority concern is not our name, our kingdom, our will, but God's. So Jesus teaches us to begin our prayer centered upon God and upon His concern and His glory rather than us. Now from there we proceed to our own needs, which we see in the last three petitions. 
It's not wrong, it's not selfish or unspiritual to pray for ourselves. We should. But we must get perspective and get our own needs and concerns in the proper priority, subordinated under a concern for God. We pray, first of all, about ourselves concerning our physical need. Give us this day our daily bread. We have the problem of presuming that we have our physical well-being in control. We have our government-protected saving plan. When uh, a pestilence hits, unlike the ancient world, we spray the grasshoppers with insecticide and get rid of them. When drought hits, we simply empty a lake and irrigate our fields. We think that we control things and we lose sight of the fact that we are dependent upon God. Sometimes we say the words, but it's just a ritual. Like Jimmy Stewart in the movie Shenandoah. He played the part of a widower in the last century and his religious wife had made him promise on her deathbed that he would always say grace at meals with the children. So one scene shows him in the fall having a harvest meal together and he prays, Dear God, I thank you for this food which we planted, we watered, we cultivated, we harvested, and we cooked. Amen. We sometimes like that lose sight of the fact that we're dependent upon God. The stock market crash last fall caught some of you by surprise. And you felt that there was a lot of money there and all of a sudden there wasn't. Or real estate uh, ups and downs. Some have invested money in real estate and thought they could count on it and it's not there. Or a job that's lost. Or health that is lost. A friend of ours told us recently two incidents that brought this to the fore in our minds. Her uh, uh, daughter-in-law and son-in-law, her 28, were hit by a drunk driver and instantly killed and their two-year-old son permanently brain damaged. At the same time, her 34-year-old sister, not very old, is struck with cancer and is, uh, her life is in jeopardy. We are dependent upon God. We cannot ever get to the point where we say, I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to ask God for it. So Jesus says, pray daily. Give us this day our daily bread. And we're led to pray daily so we can daily be reminded that we're dependent upon God. And notice he says, give us this day our daily bread. It's not our daily croissant or our Chateaubriand caviar. Luxuries are nice, and I enjoy them just as much as you do. But we all know that we need to be content with what we have. And mere, uh, the, the mere necessities really are sufficient. And we can find contentment whether or not we get those extra things. So we say, give us our needs. Give us the daily bread. We pray not only for our physical needs, but our spiritual needs. Verse 12, we pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. A newspaper article ran a 
an article a few years ago about two churches that were trying to merge. But they ran into a problem because they had different liturgical backgrounds. One church said this prayer, forgive us our debts. The other church said the form of the prayer, forgive us our trespasses. And as they met together in committee and tried to hammer out the differences and neither would give up their tradition. So the newspaper reported that the proposed merger failed. The first church was left with their debt and the second was left in their trespasses. <laughs> well, whatever word we use, the meaning is clear. We are sinners, and sin brings a debt before God. And so we are told to pray each day, forgive us our sins. We're reminded that we are sinful, that we fall short of God's standard. Jesus says the law is summed up just in two simple commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'll be so bold as to say that there's not one of us here today, myself included, who has loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength today, and it's not even 12 o'clock. So we need to say, forgive us our debts. But we say, as we forgive our debtors. As we forgive other people, we don't earn God's forgiveness. Our forgiveness only comes through the fact that Jesus Christ has died in the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But we forgive our debtors because it would be an affront to God's mercy to receive and to claim His forgiveness and then to refuse to forgive some fellow human being who has done something wrong to us. There may be some of us here who, as Ben sang the song beautifully before I came up, were singing along with him. But really, it's empty. Because along with that, the beautiful words you were singing with him, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, there's bitterness in your heart. Maybe your spouse has run away with somebody else that was a horrible injustice, and you're pained. And you don't want to release that bitterness. God says, forgive as I have forgiven you. Maybe it's something simple. On the way to church, you would determine, this is one Sunday we're going to be on time. You got in the car and started, and maybe your wife is still fixing her hair and doing, putting on her make-believe, I mean, makeup and all that stuff that you just, you can't understand why it takes so long. And It was already 10.45 or 11 before you left the house. Maybe you're still mad and unforgiving. But Jesus says, pray, relieving yourself of all the burden of resentment that naturally encumbers us, and say, forgive us our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive those of others. And we pray concerning our spiritual vulnerability. Verse 13 says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, God doesn't tempt anyone, but these words recognize that God is sovereign. That no temptation can, can come to us except by the permissive will of God. And this prayer recognizes that you and I are vulnerable. I don't care who you are. You may be in a Christian for 20 years You may be an elder, you may be a missionary, 
You may uh, be very faithful in your Bible study. Tomorrow you can fall. Today you can fall. So Jesus says, pray. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Proverbs says, pride comes before a fall. I think of the story of Peter in the New Testament. The night in which Jesus was betrayed, he told his disciples that tonight the scripture will be fulfilled. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But I'm praying for you that you'll return. And Peter says, not me, Lord. I'm Peter. I'm strong. I'm tough. A big fisherman. I'm one of the inner circle. You know, I saw you on the Mount of Transfiguration. I've had these experiences. I've been with you. I'm not going to fall. Don't worry about me. I will be faithful even to the point of death. Jesus shook his head, knowing the ignorance of Peter's statement. And then the gospel writers tell us that right after that, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he says, watch and pray with me. Do not enter into temptation. Peter said, well, it's a big meal. My stomach's full. I feel drowsy. I'm going to have a nap. I don't need to pray. So he lies down and goes to sleep. Jesus, the Son of God, falls on his face before the Father. And he says, I'm facing a spiritual crisis. I don't want to have to go through the suffering of the cross. I don't want to be alienated from my Father, have the guilt of man's sin placed upon me and be tortured. But not my will be done, may your will be done. So Jesus withstood his test. Peter got up from there. He left. Jesus was arrested. He followed Jesus to the courtyard of the priest. And then when a slave girl came up to Peter and said, Aren't you a Galilean? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? He says, I don't know what you're talking about. She persisted. He says, I swear to God, I never even knew the man. Peter, who was so strong. Peter, who had had these great experiences and been on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, who was so close to Jesus, felt he didn't need prayer. And so he fell. And it may be for you tomorrow. Maybe the, a new secretary comes into the office who's awfully pretty and she's hurting from a broken relationship and comes up next to you and gives you attention you never had before. You don't think you're vulnerable, but it might happen tomorrow. Or it may be as you're doing the books, you find an incongruity and you can uh, straighten things out. Nobody will ever notice and there's a hundred bucks extra you can just put in your pocket. Nobody's going to know. It may come tomorrow. Or somebody may say something that's really untrue about you and it hurts. And you're not spiritually prepared and you respond with revenge and retaliation. You become a gossip. You become bitter. It may happen tomorrow. Jesus says, remember that as human beings you are weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we need to pray, God, protect me from the spiritual temptations that will confront me. Jesus teaches us how to pray. Don't pray just to impress other people with how spiritual we are. Don't try to treat prayer like a magic act. 
If we just learn the right techniques, we think we can manipulate God. Because we always come before God humbly as suppliants. We don't command Him to do things. And as you pray, pray first of all for God and for His concerns. And then you'll be ready to bring your own concerns before the throne of His grace. I'd like for us now to pray this prayer together. And I'll expand upon it. Maybe we'll have some more understanding as we go through it. Let's bow our heads now and let's pray this prayer once more together. God, we come before you as our Father. You are a person, not just a blind force. We come asking you, not demanding or trying to manipulate and control. You are our Father in heaven, seated above all powers, sovereign over all of creation. We come before you confident that you are the one in control. We look at this world in which we live and we see that people don't see you. They have suppressed the truth about God and creation and in their conscience They've rejected the teaching of the Bible and they make their own gods, idols or philosophical abstractions or gods of money and pleasure. And Lord, we're bothered by this. We want people to be freed from slavery to falsehood and all the evil that it brings, to know you, the true and living God. We pray that you would Bring your truth to this world. We pray that you would send workers out into the lost areas around the world, to the mission fields where millions are dying without knowing you. We pray that you would strengthen our missions program, that more might go and have a deeper effect. We pray for our own impact here, that you would somehow create those opportunities where we can reach out to relatives and neighbors and friends and colleagues and have that opportunity to bring them your word of truth. We pray that Jesus Christ will come again soon and that we will see all of creation acknowledge him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We will see your name exalted and your will be done upon this earth as it is in heaven. And we bring you, Lord, our own needs. We recognize that we are human beings. We're creatures. We can't control our own lives and destinies. Give us this day our daily needs, food, money, clothing, health. Provide what we need, Father. We need you. We have sinned against you, Lord, in thought, word, and deed. And we come before you asking for forgiveness and asking for the grace that we might as well forgive those around us as you have forgiven us. We recognize that we are vulnerable, that we might fall like Jimmy Swaggart or Jim Baker. We could too, each in our own way. We pray that you would strengthen us. You would be our shield and protector and defender. Give us the maturity and insight to be vigilant and to be discerning and aware of the 
forces that would draw us away from you into a pathway of destruction. Protect us, Lord, we pray. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.